this evening we are at session number six in our series of studies learning from the prayers of Paul and we're looking at the prayers that he prayed for the church in Thessalonica there are a lot of references to prayer in just these two short letters I remember he's writing to this church who was going through persecution but Paul in any of his prayers for this church is not praying that the persecution will end soon but rather his prayers are focused on their growth in godliness and the furtherance of God's kingdom that his glory will be established as the believers persevere in their persecution that's an important truth when the church goes through persecution oftentimes you know the prayers of God's people is Lord you know either stop the persecution or you're praying Lord punish the persecutors but Paul is praying over here for the persecuted church and saying Lord strengthen them that they would bring you glory during this time now Paul along with Silas and Timothy wrote this letter to the church at Thessalonica the apostle penned this epistle about six months after the first letter and this was in the year AD 51 or 52 probably from Corinth and first and second Thessalonians are considered to be Paul's earliest writings okay earliest writings now in Paul's prayer for the church in Thessalonica you know we find that the key ingredient for advancement of the gospel is prayer He's not giving them strategies on how to do things in the midst of persecution, but rather he's speaking about the importance of prayer in the midst of persecution so that the gospel would be advanced. Somebody has said that the church moves forward on its knees. The church moves forward on its knees. Listen carefully to some of these uh, quotes. Uh, no? on prayer and the importance of prayer which is written maybe more than 100 years ago but the impact of that still is there today E.M. Bounds, you know, one who has written many classics of, on prayer in his book Purpose in Prayer writes are we concerned about the coldness of the church do we grieve over the lack of conversions does our soul go out to God in midnight cries for the outpouring of his spirit if not, part of the blame lies at our door. If we do our part, God will do his. Around us is a world lost in sin. Above us is a God willing and able to save. It is ours to build the bridge that links heaven and earth. And prayer is the mighty instrument that does the work. Of the Puritan Richard Baxter, it was said that he stained his study walls with praying breath. George Whitfield, the great 18th century evangelist, is said to have prayed once, O Lord, give me souls or take away my soul. Charles Spurgeon once remarked, if any minister can be satisfied without conversions, he shall have no conversions. Dr. Chapman observed, revivals are born in prayer. And when Knox prayed, John Knox, elect in Scotland, was refreshed so prayer is the vital key is the vital key for the advancement of the gospel and someone has put it across this way yes we are called to preach but it is prayer that gives the gospel wings to fly we are living in, in our times of persecution the world over what do we pray for the persecuted church that is what paul teaches us through his prayers for the church at Thessalonica. So we're going to look at different, different short prayers that is in a interspersed right throughout this letter, and we'll learn important lessons this evening. First of all, Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, which says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing therefore among God's churches we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and the trials you are 
enduring. He starts off by saying, we ought always to thank God for you. Stop for a moment. Here is a church that is going through persecution and Paul is saying, I thank God for you guys who are going through all this suffering. Now ask yourself, what do you thank God for? What do you thank God for? D.A. Carson observes, by and large, our thanksgiving seems to be tied rather tightly to our material well-being and comfort. The unvarnished truth is that what we most frequently give thanks for betrays what we most highly value. If a large percentage of our thanksgiving is for material prosperity, it is because we value material prosperity proportionately. What do you give thanks for? Just a short introspection into our own prior lives. When you say, Lord, I thank you for what? Do we thank God for all the blessings? Do we thank God also for what he's taking us through? The lessons that we are learning through the tough situations. And when we are praying for the persecuted church, when you are praying for people who are going through persecution, what can we really give thanks to God for? Four things he mentions over here. He looks at the church at Thessalonica and says, yes, guys, you're going through hard times, but I thank God that God is taking you through. I thank God when I look at your life, this is what I see. And I realize this is not because of your blood, sweat and tears. This is what God is doing in your life. As a result, I give thanks to you. So four things he mentions or four reasons he mentions for giving thanks. Number one, <laughs> that they had a growing faith that they had a growing faith because your faith is growing more and more. Your faith is growing more and more. Remember, he first came to Thessalonica, a city of around 200,000 people in Macedonia, during his second missionary journey. Acts 17 tells what happened. He preached in the Jewish synagogue for three consecutive Sabbaths. What was his message to them? Acts 17, 2 and 3 tells us, that he preached about the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus. And he said, this Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you, is the Christ. No, you know, soft peddling the issue. He says, this Jesus, who was here, who lived, died, rose again. This Jesus is the Christ. This Jesus is the Messiah. This is the one whom, G whom God has sent. What is the effect of this? Acts 17, 4 tells us that many were saved, but obviously, People are also not impressed with that. The Jews definitely would have been very upset when he said, this Jesus is the Christ. They crucified him. And now Paul is coming and preaching and saying, this is God himself. They were definitely upset. Verse 5 tells us you know, some bad characters. In fact, the KJV uses you know, a little more stronger words. It says, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Okay. They provoked a mob <laughs> to force Paul and his associates to leave the city. <clears throat> As a result, what happened to these new converts? You know, they were left on their own. They were left to weather the storm you know, without any other help because he's preached. People have come to know the Lord. Trouble has happened and they have had to leave. But God was with them. God was with them. That's an important truth, isn't it? It's not our sowing and the reaping. It is God who gives the increase. Now, you may not be in touch with them. You, know, you don't know what, you know what is happening. You're no longer in interaction. But God is at work. God is at work. And as a result, the faith of the church at Thessalonica stood the test. And not only did they remain faithful, they increased. They increased. Their faith continued to grow. They had a big view of God. They didn't say, God, you have abandoned us. You know, you have got us into a soup. No, no. They continued to trust God in the midst of the problems. And as a result, Paul looked at that. Maybe when he get, got back, maybe when he wrote the first letter, maybe when news came around, you know, he must have often prayed for these individuals to say, Lord, I'm no longer able to be with them, but I know you're there with them. And as a result, as Paul continued to trust God, the individuals continue to trust God, and as a result, if you notice, their faith began to grow. Now, this is an important thing, isn't it? When we are praying for people, the persecuted church, individuals whom you know, they are going through tough situations in life. 
you may not be able to geographically go and be present over there. But you can definitely thank God that, God, you are present over there. And as you hear reports of what is happening, their faith not weakening but growing stronger in the midst of that situation, definitely you can thank God for their faith. Okay. Secondly, they had an abundant, an abounding love. The abounding love. Verse 3 tells us that the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Is increasing. Think of it. These guys were baby Christians from different backgrounds. Rich and poor, you know, top kind of uh, society, low society. Different, different backgrounds have come to know the Lord, you know. Maybe also Jews and Gentiles, you know, mixture. But they realized they were one family. So not only was their love for God increasing, their faith was going stronger and stronger. Their love for one another to recognize that they are part of a family was also continuing to grow, continuing to grow. And that is a simple sign that it is God who has done the work, isn't it? Because that's what Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it was God who did the work, faith was growing. It was God who did the work, so he was able to change hearts, you know, from whatever strata of society, whatever backgrounds, what united them together was to recognize, hey, we are in this together, okay? We are suffering together, and they learned to love one another, and their love for each other, each other also continue to grow. Thirdly, he thanks God that they had a model reputation. In verse 4, he says, Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith. The King James says, We ourselves glory in you in the churches of God. Paul, looking back and pointing to and uh, the other churches may be and appointing you know, to the other churches about the church in Thessalonica who would have definitely said, hey, look at these guys. See how they are standing firm. See how they are continuing to grow. See how they love one another. It was definitely a model church. Now, when you thank God for what God is doing and give praise to Him, if you notice, individuals will continue to grow in that uh, atmosphere, if you were to say, of praise. But if, on the other hand, you are focusing on the negative, you know, the chances are they would also give up in the midst of that tough situation. Now, this is a simple parenting principle. Those of us who are parents of children growing or growing grown up, you know, simple principle of you know, praise being the most valuable tool for the children's growth in life. Children live up to the expectations that is set before them. You give them praise, you know, obviously not in a, in a, if you were to say, in a, in a wrong manner or a false manner, things that they are going doing good, you know, things that they have done right, appreciating, encouraging, that does definitely spur them on. But if on the other hand, it's only negative that are pointed out. You have not done this. You have not done this. You have not done this. Chances are, they will say, all this I have done, but my parents don't notice that at all. And they can get frustrated. So it is not that the church in Thessalonica would have no problems. But Paul, looking at the church, says, hey, these things you are doing well. I appreciate you. And that definitely would have helped them to you know, move on ahead in the midst of that you know, tough situation. Fourthly, they exhibited endurance in the face of persecution. Verse 4, it says, We boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecution and trials that you are enduring. Obviously, this verse means that life did not become any easier for them. Trouble came. Paul and the leaders were sent out. But the church there... Problems didn't stop. Problems are continuing on. Persecution was still continuing on. But they continued to endure. They continued to endure. If you notice in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 22, we are told, Then Paul and Barnabas preached the good news in the city, that is Derby, and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and the Antioch, strengthening the disciples and 
encouraging them to remain true to the faith. How do they encourage them to remain true to the faith? He said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. What is Paul telling them? What is the message of encouragement that he was giving to them? Hey guys, life is going to be tough. There are going to be many hardships, but it is going to be worth it. It is going to be worth it. A church which is not given the, giving this you know, warning and encouragement will be very slack in their growth. A church that is only spoken to say, life is going to be good for you, good for you, God is going to bless you. When problems come, they will say, where is God? But a church which is want to say, life is going to be tough for you, but God is there with you. He is going to take you through. Situations may not change, you know, but God's presence is going to be there with you. That enables them to endure. And that's the message that uh, Paul has written, Paul has spoken. And that's the same message that we also need to imbibe in our own lives. When we go through hard times, oftentimes our prayer is always, Lord, take away the hard times. And we want to be here to hear people and preachers who will say, no hard times will come upon you. But the Bible never says no hard times will come. The Bible always says, if you are in Christ, you will suffer tribulation. Hard times will come. But the assurance is, the one who has started the good work, he is the one who is going to continue it. So God is there with us. So endure. And Paul looks at the church and says, hey, all these things are there and I thank God for you. Then in verses 11 and 12, you have his prayer. Verses 11 and 12, it says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified you in you and you in him, according to the grace of our Lord and of, of our God and Lord Jesus. This is Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer is he seeks to encourage the church by reminding them, hey, you're doing a good job. You're serving the Lord faithfully. Life is tough. You're continuing to persevere, you know. I praise God for that. But then he also says, you know, I'm also praying for you. I'm also praying for you, okay. He's not just giving them a good word and saying, I'm not doing anything over here. He says, I'm also praying for you. So it's interesting. It starts off, you know, his prayer with to this end, okay, with this in mind. Therefore, in view of this, okay. As soon as all these words come in, immediately, naturally we ask, what is in mind? What is in Paul's heart you know, when he's you know, praying for this? So the first important thing that he prays is he prays with the future in mind, with the future in mind. Now, what is the future that is spoken about? The previous verses, verses 5 to 10, speak about with this in mind. You know, what is the context? Verse 5 to 10 says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, give relief to those uh, to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. What does he put across in all these things? He says, yes, you're going through the tough times. You're enduring. But what is the future? He says, the future is very clear, either when you face the judgment, punishment or reward, you know, putting it in simple terms. Either you can go through the hard times and give up on life and say, where is God and go to hell? Or you can go through the tough times and say, God, you're still there with me and looking forward for the reward that is going to be there. You press on 
in faithfulness. So it is very, very clear that Paul is saying with this in mind, the future in mind, the future of a clear-cut distinction between the separation of the sheep and the goats, hell and heaven. Okay. So he says, with this in mind, that there is going to be a judgment, I'm praying for you guys that you will continue to stay firm. Now, it is sad to say over the years, there has been a watering down, if you were to say, of the clear-cut distinguishing factors between heaven and hell. Okay? They say in the early 20th century, there was a shift in many churches in which doing good works for people and especially efforts to relieve human suffering began to compromise and then replace the gospel. So it was no longer a question of hell and heaven being decided on the, pers- on the basis of a person's response to what Christ has done for him or her on the cross. But it came to be on the basis of the good works that you have done. That was the social gospel, social gospel. And they say by the seven, early 1970s, it was not uncommon to find churches that were providing food for the poor, but you could not get a Bible from them. In other words, you know, the emphasis was more on the good deeds. You know, it doesn't matter, really matter what the Bible says. It doesn't really matter, you know, listening to sound doctrine. It doesn't really matter whether you're reading the Bible or not. What really matters is the good that you are doing. That was in the early 70s. And then as time went on again, the shift became not just from the social gospel, the shift came to the health, wealth gospel. That God is here to make your life happy, you know. God is here to make your life wealthy. God is here to make your life smooth here on earth. That is what God is there for. He's like a genie, you know. Press the right button, say the right words, and God will bless you. Now, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. So what Paul is saying here is, you know, when he's praying for the church in Thessalonica, is a lot of tough times are there. Whether it's physical persecution or if you were to say mental and spiritual persecution by these wrong gospels that are there, Paul is saying, keeping this in mind, that there's going to be a final accountability. There's going to be a final judgment. So he's saying, I am praying for you. I am praying for you. Now, remember when he's saying, uh, he's not saying, look, I'm not bothered about what you guys are suffering, but I'm praying. Now, this is the accusation, maybe the uh, proponents of the social gospel will say, you know. Oftentimes, they'll give you this example, if a person is dying, what will you give him, you know. Would you give him a piece of you know, bread or would you share the gospel with him? You know? And they will try and put you on the spot and say, if you say, I will give him a piece of bread, then he say, okay, that is more important than the gospel. No, no, we must be careful. It is not either or, it is a both situation. Now, When we say we are believers, we have a responsibility for those who are suffering. But if we say because we have elevated the the suffering individuals and helped them in their need, we have provided salvation to them for all eternity, that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. So that is what Paul is praying away. He says, with this in mind, knowing that the important thing is that there is going to be a reward for some, and there's going to be a punishment for the others. As a result, I'm praying that you guys will stay firm. Don't change. Don't shift your thinking. Don't give up on your faith. Now, in this world that we live in, with differing theologies about heaven and hell, you know, over the years again, there are some people who say, no, no, everybody won't go to hell, those who don't believe. God will keep them there for some time. And after that, you know, he will say, okay, you know, you can, now you have suffered enough, I will take you into heaven. No, that's not what the Bible says, you know, because if Jesus shed his very precious blood on the cross, you know, for our sins, it is not like, okay, now you can enjoy your life here on earth, you get into hell for some time period, and then you can, you know, get back into heaven. That is not God's plan. Neither is the thought that some people again have, that God will wipe them out in hell, you know, annihilation of the wicked, they'll be destroyed. Now, that's not what the Bible teaches us about hell either. The Bible teaches about hell also being eternal in that sense, ongoing, you know, where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched, you know. 
So we must get clear-cut pictures about heaven and hell. And that's what he's explained to the church. Remember, you know, Paul's letters has doctrine, has prayer, his prayer also has doctrine. Here he's putting this doctrine in place to say, when we understand the seriousness of the impact for all eternity, he says, with this in mind, this is why I am praying for you. He also prays with persistent. <clears throat> if you notice, this is a phrase that you'll constantly use, isn't it? In all his prayers that we have studied, I constantly pray for you. I constantly pray for you. In fact, in, a, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he wrote to the church and said, pray without ceasing. So when he wrote to them, pray without ceasing, you know, he was also practicing, obviously, what he was preaching. He knew that this is the lifestyle that you and I should have the constant relationship and fellowship with God. And as we do that on a constant manner, that's where we are spiritually nourished. You know? It's like the spiritual breath that we need to take so that our oxygen levels are always maintained. E.M. Bounds again in his purpose in prayer writes, one of Satan's wiliest tricks is to destroy the best by the good. Business and other duties are good, but we are so filled with these that they crowd out and destroy the best. Prayer holds the citadel for God, and if Satan can by any means weaken prayer, he is a gainer so far, and when prayer is dead, the citadel is taken. Yes, deeds are important. Yes, work for God is important, but if prayer is not there, all those things are useless. Satan knows that. So he keeps us busy, busy, busy. Oftentimes, some excuses that people will give would be that I'm so busy, I don't have time for prayer. And uh, that's a dangerous statement to make, isn't it? If you are busy, you should, in fact, be able to spend more time in prayer so that what you're doing becomes effective. Thirdly, he prayed with a purpose. He prayed with a purpose. And the purpose is mentioned in these next verses where he gives us his reasons. Now, what is he really praying for, for this church? Verses 11 and 12 says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you. And then he moves on further and gives us specific reasons. A couple of important requests that he makes over there. Three specific requests. First of all, he asks God to do a work in the church, inside inside okay what is that part of that inside he says that god will make you worthy of the calling and remember he is using that our god okay will make you worthy of the calling what he's saying god has called you guys god has called you now and uh, uh, me and paul and silas and timothy all of us together same god he says our god will make you worthy of the calling would be able to recognize you now why God has called us. Why God has called us. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. God calls people to be saved to fulfill his purposes. Okay. His purposes, not our works, not our purposes, but he's praying. Lord, I'm praying that the purpose for which you have established the church at Thessalonica, that would be fulfilled. The purpose for which God has saved us to himself, that will be fulfilled. Remember again, the purpose for which God has saved us is not so that just we could go to heaven, isn't it? If that was the purpose, as soon as we said yes to the Lord, that the Lord worked in our lives, we should all die and go to heaven. No. The purpose for which God has saved us, and He has kept us here on earth, He has kept us alive for a purpose. Paul's prayers, Lord, help them to see what that purpose is. Ephesians 1, 18 and 19 says, The eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Paul's prayers, constant, Lord, open their eyes so that they would recognize that you have called them for a purpose. Okay. Now, we are living in this world again where 
people are looking for meaning. We are people are looking for some purpose in life, isn't it? You know, oftentimes you know you have these words you know being used you know all the time. You know, what is your purpose in life? Do you have a purpose in life? And people, young people, think I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to climb up the ladder. Is that your purpose? Is it God's purpose? What is God's calling? Upon your life, Romans chapter eight verses twenty nine and thirty says, "For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called; and those whom he called, he also justified; and those whom he justified, he also glorified." <coughs> Think of all those. Steps, if you were to say over there, God has called you for that purpose. For what? End result is, He has started the work. He is going to continue to do it so that God's name is glorified. It is God who has started the work. It is God who has called you. If this grips our understanding, then we are not living for the everyday, mundane, you know, nitty-gritty things of life. Every day we are asking, Lord, you have given me this day. I thank you for this day. What is your purpose for my life today that I can fulfill? And that's what Paul is praying, that they would be worthy of the calling that God has placed upon them. God has uh, uh, revealed himself to them. There is still a long way to go. Paul is actually saying, you know, Lord, you have called them. They have not finished their work as yet. They haven't arrived yet. Lord, I'm praying that you'd continue to do your work in their lives, that they'd understand your calling, fulfill your purpose. And that's the same prayer that we can pray for us and for others as well. Secondly, he asks God to do a work for the church. In the church, now for the church. That, and may he fulfill every desire for goodness. May he fulfill every resolve for good. The word that is used here you know, can be translated in several ways, but it is primarily an inner motivation, a resolve that will be characterized by delight or good pleasure. Paul is saying, Lord, help them to recognize their purpose in life, their calling in life. But he's also praying, Lord, do this work in their hearts that it will be out of an inner motivation. Uh, like Paul would say, you know, woe to me if I preach now the gospel. Uh, if I kept it to myself, it was like a fire in my bones, Jeremiah would say. Okay. This is the aspect of that inner motivation. Lord, help me to fulfill your call, but let it start deep down inside of me. Let the motivation for doing so come inside. You change my heart, Lord. Because the world around has different, different purposes, different, different callings. But Lord, you change my heart inside out that my heart's desire every day would be for your good pleasure. That's the second prayer that he prays and a second and a reason that God would fulfill every purpose in their lives. That God alone can change their motivation for living so that... Some people have the Monday morning blues, you know. They say, oh, another Monday now, weekend is over. No, no, every day looking forward to see what God has for us. Remember the scripture says we are co-workers together with God. So when you're speaking about co-workers, you know, the excitement of working together, that's what Paul is praying here over here. Lord, give them that inner motivation to face each day. Whatever happens along to know that, if God, you are there with them, you will take them through. Thirdly, he asked God to do a work through the church, in, for, and through. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, God wants to accomplish something through us. What is that? That God would be glorified. That God would be glorified. The whole reason for all this you know, is that when you and I live lives that are so different from the world around us, they'll be able to recognize, hey, there's something different. 
there is something different that they would give glory to God. Remember, you know, persecution is still happening, you know, gospel must still advance. How is the gospel going to advance in the midst of tough situations? If you're sitting down and fighting and saying, take away this, take away this, this is our right, how is the gospel going to advance? Paul is giving us some simple principles over here. You know. Let's pray. Pray for God to change our attitudes. Pray that God would do his work in us as, I, as he does his work in us. That our prime desire would be everything we say and do. Let the people around know that we are different, that you are glorified. That's what the Lord says, isn't it? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. That's a non-Christian world. May see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Dear Carson again, who is a seminary professor, expands this thought, you know, with this illustration. Let me share this illustration, you know, with us this evening. He writes, many of us have had the experience of asking a parent, how are your children doing? Only to get an answer like this. Oh, Johnny is doing very well now. His career as a research physicist has really taken off. He's the youngest person in his company to have been appointed to the board. And Evelyn is doing very well too. She's into computer programming and is already the head of her section. And then when you ask, and how are they doing spiritually? There's a long pause. And they respond, I'm afraid they're not really walking with the Lord at the moment. But we are hoping they'll come back someday. And Dr. Carson offers this probing explanation. He says, of course, the initial response of such parents may be a reflection of nothing more than privacy, a quiet and loyal concern not to disparage any family members, but too often it reflects warped priorities. He writes, I've had parents, ostensibly Christian parents, rage at me because they thought I had influenced their bright children to train for ministry, perhaps for missionary service. Others are joyous over their children's material prosperity and not terribly concerned over their children's utter indifference to the God who made them. How will these values appear 30 years or 40 billion years from now, from eternity's perspective? What should be the primary things for which we should pray for our children, for ourselves, and for fellow believers? Very clear-cut, specific questions to examine our own lives this evening. What are we really concerned about? A lot of times we have got so caught up and embraced the value systems of the world that we are looking only for climbing up the ladder, even at the cost of abandoning your faith. And it is sad in our culture today when young people get into the 11th and 12th years, that's the crucial age in life when they are deciding on so many important things. But those are the times again, oftentimes, parents will allow their children to be cut off from everything that is spiritual because they have to study, study, study. And after those two years, they are lost. They are lost. Maybe they get into a good professional college. Maybe they move on further and get the topmost positions. But there's been no foundation of the word. There's been no foundation of the faith. And oftentimes they have abandoned their faith. Let's be careful that we don't get sucked into the world system and its priorities. As we pray for our children, as we pray for friends, as we pray for the world and its needs, let us help. And let's be careful to keep perspectives in clear. Eternity in view. Remember, final judgment, either hell or heaven. With this in mind, Paul is praying. And we must always, when we pray for individuals, keep that in mind as we pray. So six simple lessons from, for service from Paul's prayer. God has called each one of us to be involved in service. When we say service, it is not just full-time service. But it is service that God has created us for. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. You know, God has a purpose. God has gifted us. And we must make sure that we fulfill that which God has called us to. And that's what his prayer 
for the church at Thessalonica. And let's learn some simple pointers, if we were to say, of how we should be involved in service. Six simple lessons. Number one, serve the Lord prayerfully, prayerfully. Plenty of verses you know, in this you know, epistle points to short prayers that he prayed you know, constantly, constantly. We are reading in Second Thessalonians 1.11, to this end also we pray for you. We read in verse in a, a, a 2, you know, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.2, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Okay? Constantly he's you know, emphasizing this. You know, service starts and ends and continues with prayer. So if you really want to serve God, make sure that you are a praying individual because that's the key for missions, key for growth, key for service. Number two, serve the Lord out of godly character, out of godly character. We learned about how God wants us to be worthy of our calling. God has a high calling upon our lives, okay, and as a result, we should be willing to live up to that high calling. We should long for that day when we see Jesus face to face to hear from him. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Thirdly, serve the Lord joyfully. Serve the Lord joyfully. Fulfill every desire for goodness. The Greek scholar J.B. Lightfoot translated this as delight in well-doing. In other words, Serving the Lord should not be a duty that we do or grudgingly out of guilt, but out of delight. Psalm 100 verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. Sometimes we think that if we want to serve the Lord, the Lord will ask us to do, to do those things that you don't like to do. That doesn't give us any joy. As often, earlier times, people used to say, you know, I want to give my life to the Lord, and the Lord will say, okay, you have said, yes, I'm going to send you to Africa. I'm going to send you to the toughest areas. No, that's not our God. The picture of our God is not like, as soon as we say, yes, I'm saying, yes, I want, you said, yes, now I will show you. No, no. God wants to give us joy. Okay? Serving the Lord is a delight, you know. And we have to look at those things that bring joy to our heart as we serve according to the gifts and talents that God has given to us. And that will bring joy to God's heart as well. So serve the Lord not out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of joy. Fourthly, serve the Lord in his power, in his power, that God would fulfill every work of faith with power, with power. Remember, working for God, serving God, it is definitely only through the power that God gives to us. Okay? Colossians 1.29 says, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works in me. A lot of strong words over there. Serving the Lord is not easy, because the world is going in another direction. So he says, For this purpose also I labor, striving, Everybody is going on the other side, opposite side, and against another, and me. But I'm going to go in this direction, striving according to His power that mightily works in me. If, you're, if the whole crowd is going in one direction and you have to go into the other direction, you require a lot of power, isn't it? And others, you can be knocked down flat. God, but God is saying, I'm giving you that power. I'm giving you that power. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 15:10 says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God was with me. So if in case you feel, you know, life is getting tough in serving God, you know, everybody is doing something else, you know, their own thing, building their own kingdoms, you know, and God is expecting me to do this, why should I only be the sufferer? No, serve the Lord with endurance. Serve the Lord, not by own strength, but by the power that he gives to you. Why? Fifthly, serve the Lord for his glory, for his glory, so that the name of the Lord 
is glorified. Remember, the goal is not our kingdom. The goal is not our praise. The goal is always that God would be glorified. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. By the strength which God supplies, so that in all things, God may be glorified. That should be our end result for serving. It is so easy in the world that we live in, where people are living for themselves and position and popularity and power and riches, to get sucked into that mold. What Paul is saying, if you really want to serve the Lord, make sure that your goal is, Lord, I want you to be glorified. Let that be our prayer each day. As we go through the day, to remember <laughs> that the treasure is in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God would be seen. That it is not our power, but it is God's power. And finally, number six, serve the Lord according to His grace. Verse 12, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God who is going to give us grace sufficient for every day. Isn't that such a beautiful thing? Isn't that such an encouraging thing? No matter whatever you're going through in life, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Take hold of that power. Take hold of that grace. And so serve so that God's name is lifted up. Moving further in chapter 3, you know, he makes a short prayer for himself. Paul's request, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. He's asking for prayer that the gospel would be advanced, that the gospel would be advanced. He recognized, you know, yes, he's been going on missionary journeys, he has been put into prison, yes, he's, he's been lashed, but he's praying through all this that the gospel be advanced. You know? And then he also asks prayer that he would be protected and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith, for not everyone has faith. Here he's not speaking about travel mercies, okay? What he has in mind is the enemies of the cross. Maybe the church in Thessalonica knew who, you, who they were. Maybe he's referring to the, those individuals that caused trouble over there. And maybe he's also referring as he has traveled in different places, you know, the people who do not like the message, who have persecuted him and you know, maybe sent him out of cities, you know, who are hostile to his message. He's saying, pray that the gospel would be advanced, pray that you know the enemy's you know, efforts will be thwarted. And finally, in verse 16, in his closing prayer, his final petition, you know, undergoing persecution, this is what he prays. <laughs> First of all, in verse 16, he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, and in every way the Lord be with you. He prayed for their peace. In the midst of all situations, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. God's peace doesn't depend upon our circumstances. You know? God's peace doesn't depend upon our circumstances. Whatever the circumstances, God can still give you peace. And that is what will transform the hearts of the people around. Hey, here he's going through so much trouble. Here he's going to so much of persecution. Here we are doing this to him, but still he's at peace. Remember when Stephen was stoned to death, people looked at him, you know, his face was glowing, and they say, Hey, we are stoning him to death, you know. What is he doing? What is he saying? Lay not this sin against their charge. And that, I'm sure, would have definitely struck a spark in the mind of and heart of Paul also. Because the scripture tells us that they laid Stephen's clothes at his feet. 
And then when he was on the day on the road to Damascus, as soon as the Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? He immediately recognized, Who are you, Lord? God was working in his life because he has seen the reaction of Stephen. So he's saying, Lord, I'm praying that you would grant them peace in any situation, in any circumstances, remembering that prayer and our peace does not depend on circumstances, but peace depends on the Lord, on God's presence. That's why he says, the Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. Let me close with this illustration. In 1952, a young woman by the name of Florence Chadwick stepped off the beach in Catalina Island and into the water, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She was already an experienced long-distance swimmer. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly on the day she set out. She could scarcely see the boats that would accompany her. For 15 hours, she swam. She begged to be taken out, but her trainer urged persistence, telling her again and again that she could make it, that the shore was not far away. Physically and emotionally exhausted, she finally just stopped swimming, and she was pulled out. The boats made for the shore, and she discovered it was a mere half mile away. The next day, she gave a news conference where she said, I do not want to make excuses for myself. I am the one who asked to be pulled out. But I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Two months later, she proved her point on a bright and early and a clear day. She plunged back into the sea and swam the distance. If we could see the shores of heaven right now, it would affect a lot of things, wouldn't it? Including the way we pray. Once it grips us, hey, this is reality. There is a heaven. There is a hell for all eternity. Once this grips us, if we can only get a glimpse of that, I'm sure it would change the way we pray. So this evening, ask yourself, how do you pray for those who are suffering from persecution and affliction? Okay. Yes, we should definitely pray for their comfort and relief. But we must also see beyond the present circumstances, to God who is at work, despite the evil being done to others by the wicked. For suffering non-Christians, we should pray that they will see their need for the Savior and cry out to Him that He would save them. But for suffering Christians, we pray that God will glorify Himself in them through their response in the work of faith to endure with godliness so that they can reflect forth the very life of Jesus in them. A couple of important application questions before we close. Number one, why do so many Christians not get involved in serving the Lord? And how can this be overcome? Number two, since godly character takes time to develop, how godly must one be to serve the Lord? Should a new believer serve him? Number three, how can a believer discover his or her spiritual gifts? How important is it to know what your gifts are? Number four, what are some wrong motives for serving the Lord? How does serving for the wrong motives lead to big trouble? Let's bow our heads and pray together.